When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting. We plan to take you into some of our favorite bird covers as we talk to the people that hunt them and the organizations that support them. We'll also break down the dogs, guns, and gear used to pursue them, and of course, we'll share the stories that celebrate this American tradition. It's one of those things that you do that, that feels timeless. My dad brought home our first Brittany when I was about 10 years old. The Red Gods are calling, and I must go. These are your stories. tuned into the project upland podcast i'm your host nick larson welcome to the show for episode number 58 this episode of the podcast is brought to you by pine ridge grouse camp the premier rough grouse and woodcock hunting experience located in northern minnesota jerry and the crew will take good care of you hunting season is definitely one you want to be there but you know what they've got some other stuff going on in the spring woodcock banding clinic upland bird training camp Got some dog training throughout the summer. They do a lot of fun stuff there. Check them out at pineridgegrousecamp.com. And by Dogtra Collars. Dogtra bringing you a full line of dog training collars, remote training collars. Top quality, top-notch stuff. Just had a long conversation with a senior consultant, Pete Fisher, at Dogtra earlier this week. We talked about a bunch of fun stuff, uh, some new products they have coming up, and we're actually going to get him on the podcast probably next week that podcast will be up soon not sure exactly when yet but stay tuned and if you have any questions about specific dog trick callers or products let me know send me an email nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com and by yukonuba premium performance dog food made with the highest levels of protein and fat to promote lean muscle and sustained energy for peak performance in your bird dog 100% complete and balanced nutrition without the use of any fillers. 
Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food for Sporting and Hunting Dogs. Check it out today at yukonuba.com. And by Gordy and Sons Outfitters. Good old-fashioned family values. Gordy and Sons Outfitters is local, family-owned company based in Houston, Texas. They are passionate about hunting and fly fishing and the outdoors and conservation. From the best gear to the best guides, information and expertise, Gordy and Sons has you covered. Find out more about them and what they can do for you and your outdoor adventures at GordyAndSons.com. And finally, by our friends at Dakota 283 Kennels. Check them out at Dakota283.com. I chatted with Greg Cronkite, the owner of Dakota 283, last week. We talked about the upcoming kennels that are engineered and designed to fit under a tonneau cover or in the backseat of a pickup truck. A little bit different size option and variation than some of the stuff they have on the site right now. Those are not available yet. They will be soon. Greg will be joining us on the Project Dublin podcast to talk more about them when they do become available. So you will find out more about them very soon. But for now, head over to dakota283.com. Check out their complete line of kennels. And if you buy one, use the promo code PU50DD. That'll save you 50% on one of their Dine and Dash accessories. That's PU50DD for 50% off a Dine and Dash product with the purchase of a kennel and always free shipping from Dakota283.com. All right, this week's winner of the podcast giveaway, Donnie Bowling, left us a review in the Apple iTunes podcast app. Thank you, thank you so much for that, Donnie. We appreciate that and we encourage others to do the same. That helps us out, gets our podcast found, listened to, and it helps us reach more upland bird hunters. You could be next week's winner of the podcast giveaway. All you have to do is make a meaningful contribution to the show. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review just like Donnie did. Subscribe to the podcast, share the podcast post, or send us some listener feedback or an upcoming guest suggestion. Love to hear from my listeners anytime. Happy to chat. Send me an email at nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com. All right, a couple quick tidbits today. As always, Project Upland Magazine is available and on some newsstands near you. Check them out at Barnes & Noble or go to projectupland.com to order single issues or subscribe to the Project Upland Magazine, which you definitely should because it's awesome and the feedback so far has been excellent. And a special announcement, during the month of April, Project Upland is really stoked to be the official media partner on the Pheasants Forever Bird Dogs for Habitat campaign. This is a fantastic cause from an even better organization, Pheasants Forever, the Habitat organization. If you are unfamiliar with them, you should become more familiar with them because they're doing some awesome work for not only pheasants and quail, but a lot of different game birds and species of wildlife that we all love and enjoy. This month, make a contribution to Pheasants Forever in support of your favorite bird dog breed. And it just so happens that my membership for PF is due, so I can tell you right now that the English setter is going to get 35 additional votes from yours truly. There's a link in the show notes. Head over to pheasantsforever.org bird dogs for habitat it's all over the front page they've got giveaways project upland magazine subscriptions stuff from other supporting sponsors really really cool campaign that we are pumped to promote for pheasants forever 
and we encourage all of our listeners to go check it out. All right, let's do it. Today's episode, I am joined by Dr. Dustin Babbler, veterinarian for the Animal Hospital of Woodstock in Woodstock, Illinois. Dustin is, as we cover in today's show, an adult-onset upland bird hunter. He's a veterinarian. He's a skilled, knowledgeable industry professional that has a lot to share, and he has made educating upland bird hunters on canine, bird dog, first aid, one of his top missions, top priorities. We had a great conversation. We talked about a lot of really, really relevant and important information for anybody running bird dogs in the field. Care, treatment, emergency, we cover it all. I hope you enjoy it. Without further ado, let's welcome to the Project Upland podcast, Dr. Dustin Babbler. Here we go. Dustin Babbler, welcome to the Project Upland podcast. How are you this evening? Good, Nick. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate you joining us on the podcast. Excited to have a conversation with a professional that is uh, very relevant to our listeners, and I think people will be very interested in the conversation that we're going to have. So with that, let's just jump in, Dustin, and Put us on the map, first of all. Let us know where you're at, and then give us the background on your professional career, and uh, listeners will then be informed as to uh, one of the reasons why we're chatting this evening. Sure. Well, I'm a veterinarian out of Woodstock, Illinois, and that is northern Illinois, kind of north-central Illinois, right near the Wisconsin border. And I work at the Animal Hospital of Woodstock, and work with a lot of hunting dogs and a lot of breeders up there. We've actually got uh, a reproductive specialist there, so that gets me exposed to a lot of bird dogs, which is just great to sort of combine my two passions together of getting out in the field hunting and then also veterinary medicine. So, uh, And between those two passions, uh, I go around and I do a lot of speaking to a lot of the local breeding groups and, and lately been doing some uh, some other stuff too around the country and and things like this, just, again, educating hunters on their bird dogs. So you and I actually met each other while we were at Pheasant Fest in Schaumburg, Illinois, just a you know, month or two ago now, and you were there on a speaking engagement. I'm curious, are these speaking engagements, I mean, is that typical of a, of a veterinarian, or is, it, is that just kind of something that you like to do? I mean, did it find you, or how did you, uh, how did you get to be traveling around? Because then a couple of weeks after we we chatted uh you were out at another show in pennsylvania so yeah you definitely like to travel around and and uh, educate people yeah and and to my knowledge i don't think there's a lot of veterinarians doing it now there are there are uh, some out there but it just kind of has been blowing up for me originally i just did it as a favor to clients and just fun thing to do to go out to the different sporting events, you know, whether they're AQC hunt tests or different breed groups. And, you know, somebody say, Hey doc, come talk to us about field first aid or give us a rundown on nutrition or vaccines. And then I uh, started talking to some friends over at Purina and I don't know if you know Carl Gunzer, but he was the one running the show over at Pheasant Fest and got connected with him and ended up going out to Pheasant Fest and was up on their bird dog bonanza stage with 
uh, let's see, Rick and Ronnie Smith and Carl, uh, Carl Gunzer was doing a little talking, but then Tom Dockin, Tina Dockin was up there. Just a really fun time. And it's just, you know, the more you do it, the more interest there is out there. Uh, there's not a lot of, uh, of ed- veterinarians educating bird dog owners out there on what to do out in the field. You know, what, how can you help your dogs? And it helps to have a hunting background as well as the veterinary background, obviously, to kind of put those two cultures together and, and really be able to connect with people. And, and I've just had an absolute blast doing it. It's been a fun time getting to meet a lot of different people, <laughs> meeting you, doing things like this. And, yeah. You know, as long as people are willing to hear me talk, I'll keep doing it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's definitely something to be said for mixing some of your passions into your work. And you are clearly doing that in the sense that you're specializing in bird dogs and you've kind of built up this other arm of your business really to kind of travel around and, and inform people and educate people. So it's definitely, uh, that would be something to be proud of. And I've, I've been fortunate to, to work my passions into my work life a little bit. So I understand, uh, the value that that brings and, and it's pretty cool. Now you are beyond being a vet. You definitely have this affinity for bird dogs. And I mean, would you say that you specialize in bird dogs or how does your clinic run? Is it, is it kind of a, just a open to the public clinic, but you're known as a bird dog vet? I mean, I'm always curious how that, how that works. Yeah. And so I don't know if you can call it a, a being a specialist. Um, you know, our clinic, we're considered a general practice or more of a hybrid clinic okay. between general practice and specialty. And that goes back to, we have one, the board certified theogenologist, Dr. Joanne Randall, who is one of very few uh, canine reproductive specialists in the country. So a lot of people come to us for that aspect, but a lot of those people are breeders of bird dogs. And so um, naturally people are drawn together who have those same passions. So I end up working with a lot of those people on, the other aspects, you know, when they, the emergency care, the surgeries, the ultrasounds, the internal medicine. And, and again, when they sit down and talk to me about being three hours away from their truck and needing to be able to help out their dogs, I'm able to relate to them where uh, there's just not a lot of veterinarians out there who can make that connection and understand where they're coming from being out in the field and, and running bird dogs day by day. And so it really helps build those relationships. And ultimately what it's about is helping the dogs out. I mean, you talk to any hunter out there and nine out of 10 times they're going to say they do it for the dogs. And I have to say I'm in that same boat. Yeah, for sure. That's, you know, at the end of the day, those are your clients and those are the, those are the patients that you got to patients. I should say those, that's who you're taking care of. So, but it, I, I can definitely see how, you know, you've just got that added layer and you've got an appreciation for, for what these dogs do. And I, I can only imagine that's going to make you better at what you do. So that's pretty cool. Now you were not, I know this from talking to you, but we'll have you kind of give your Upland story. You did not start out Upland hunting as a youngster, like many listeners have. You, uh, your Upland story is a little bit different. So tell us about that. Yeah. And as you inform me, um, I, I suppose I'm what you would call an, what is it, an adult onset hunter? There you go. Um, yeah. So uh, <laughs> I actually started hunting in, when I was in veterinary school down at University of Illinois Champaign. And uh, my roommate was a hunter, and I always had a passion for the outdoors, whether that was hiking, uh, working with wildlife. I was a big fisherman, fishing a lot of the Wisconsin River growing up. So very passionate and connected to the outdoors, but never really got exposed to hunting. Just didn't have a whole lot of family that did it. 
and so uh, Pat Kanak, who's a veterinarian down in Peoria, Illinois, sort of invited me out, and I uh, I fell in love with it from the start. Just seeing his setter work out there was an awesome, awesome uh, field. Again, just co- combining that passion for the outdoors with that passion for dogs, and you know, part of it is understanding you have to understand nature you have to understand dogs to really enjoy it and be good at it and and i was just sucked in from there on out so i am at heart an upland game hunter but lately have been getting into the waterfowl deal too which is just a whole nother experience Uh, and i just i love it all and uh i'm glad that he went out and reached out to me and invited me out hunting because uh i just hadn't had the exposure before then that was probably about i don't know seven or eight years ago now so for you, hearing that story, this is another. This is something that we talk about a lot, especially if we're talking about recruiting new hunters. And you can, we can kind of riff on the importance of mentorship. I mean, your story is a prime example of a mentor reaching out to you and providing you the opportunity, those first experiences. And for you, it was the spark that ignited the flame. Oh, absolutely, and. If any of you were at Pheasant Fest or out in uh, Pennsylvania at the Fly Fishing Wing Shooting Expo, you'll know that I end every single one of my seminars talking about a different hunter who I've made an effort, and not only a different hunter that I've made an effort to invite out there, but somebody that you wouldn't guess would be interested in hunting. And I've got a, a lot of friends who are from downtown Chicago, or I always make fun of my, my buddy Eddie, who's a, a sort of a hippie from out west, that you just you would never think they'd have the interest and, and you invite them out and they just are so passionate and they love it. And so I think it's just so important to, to reach out, not only to those people you think will enjoy hunting, but also those that, you know, maybe never thought about it before. So something that I actually want to start doing more of is exactly what you're talking about. And that's giving, giving people their first exposure to upland hunting. Cause I'm at a point where I'm, I'm obviously super passionate about it. I love to do it. And I know that I need to give back to not only the resource as in the natural resource, but also the user. And I need to give back more than I have. I'm curious when you are, when you're bringing these, these people out for their first exposure, what does it look like? Are you going all the way, putting a gun in their hand and hoping to have them walk up on a point and shoot a bird? Do you ever just bring them along to go for a walk with you and the dogs? What are the, what does it look like when you do that? Well, first things first, I'll always get them out shooting traps first. I I don't uh, necessarily think it's a good idea to have somebody with no gun handling experience to be moving and shooting moving targets with other people and dogs around. For sure. And also that helps them know if if they're interested. If they come out trap shooting and they're not a fan of it, they're probably not going to enjoy the hunting either. But So usually I'll start out with shooting some clays, and if they like it, I'll invite them along to come shoot, and it'll just be one-on-one. Uh, maybe one other person and then one dog out there and usually it's it's some sort of controlled hunt whether that's a a club or some sort of public ground that's got planted birds that are going to be a little less wily than out hunting in the real world uh, just to kind of ease them into the sport you hear that a lot really i think we would love to have everybody's first experience be in the wild on a wild bird and i'm sure that works for a lot of people but when it comes down to time, resource, opportunity, there are there is something to be said about being able to take somebody to that more controlled environment. One of the other things that is often talked about with recruitment into the outdoor sports, whether it's fishing or hunting, is early success. And you want the person to be successful. You know, you don't want to 
put them up in a deer stand and have them sit there for <laughs> to eight, 10 hours and freeze their butt off like myself and lots of people did uh, growing up in the Northwoods. But for some reason, I was still hooked on deer hunting. I don't know why, but I do love it. <laughs> but yeah, yeah those controlled environments can be advantageous uh, in that. So of the people that you brought out, I, you know, you mentioned that some of them have definitely taken to it. Are there, has, has anybody become totally into it hardcore got the bird dog all the way have you seen it go all the way like that um not a bird dog yet mostly because the people i'm inviting are ones who live uh, downtown chicago okay so they're not looking to get a you know a bird dog when they're living in the city but um yeah my, my one friend phil's fetish he's an architect in downtown and uh, within a year he's got several different shotguns and he's going out hunting pretty routinely so he awesome. got he was hook, hook line and sinker real from the start that's pretty cool. So yeah, not only was he exposed, but he he appreciates it, and he's one less person out there that would potentially uh, be anti-hunter or, or you know against against these things that we love. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. As far as bird dogs go, I know you didn't have one at the start. They were part of your first upland hunting experiences so that's something that we look at often is were dogs part of somebody's first hunting experience for you they were how you know you were you were a vet so you already had kind of this this track built in where you had an interest in in dogs and animals how quickly did you find yourself with your own bird dog oh i think it actually believe it or not it took me a while okay um and that was really just me wanting to hunt over a variety of dogs and get a feel for for what I wanted and between flushers, pointers, and I had a lot of friends with a a lot of bird dogs to hunt over and get those experiences. And it kind of came down to um, I was looking at some wired hairs and some setters, and and I just fell in love with setters. And I'll actually tell you one funny story. And, and this is uh, anybody who knows bird dogs will appreciate this. We had a an English setter that, uh, just a routine surgery, but waking up out of anesthesia, it, it would not wake up and its vitals were fine, but it just wouldn't respond. It wouldn't open its eyes. It wouldn't. And that's fine. But after a while you start to get a little bit worried and, and probably about 20 minutes went by without any response. And now we're thinking, Oh no, is this some sort of anesthesia reaction? And, and kind of, uh, what I did, and I said, if anything's going to work, this will work just as a, a half-hearted joke. And I started playing the sound of a pheasant cackle on my phone. <laughs> and the setter, no joke, no exaggeration, it jumped up so quick that it banged its head on the top of the cage. And <laughs> I just I just thought, I said, man, this dog lives for birds. And, and I've got a good friend and dog trainer of uh, Llewellyn Setters, Alan Otten. And he had some puppies around, and we got to talking, and that's how I ended up with my little Miss Calamity Jane is what her name is. So Love I got it. a Llewellyn setter. Love yep. that Calamity Jane. Wow, that is a heck of a story. I don't think you could. Uh, I don't think you could make that up. <laughs> so yeah. how old is little Miss Calamity Jane, the Llewellyn setter? She just had her second birthday. Okay. So yeah so uh she's got her junior hunter we're working on her senior we've got hunt akc hunt test coming up this month and then uh she'll actually be having a litter of puppies later this year as well so, so what do you do for what do you do for training have you kind of gone all you know head over heels into dog training uh, obviously you're doing some testing what's what does that look like for you yeah well like i said uh 
he's a, a local trainer out here with Steady on Point, and uh, that's where I got the pup from. And he's really kind of taken me along. You'd think as a veterinarian, you would just have uh, be intuitive as far as training goes, but 90% of training is training the handler, not yep, the dog. Yep. <laughs> and and so I'd say Alan worked quite a bit on training me and getting me uh, <laughs> in order in order to uh, work with Callie. So yeah, definitely we're out uh, once twice a week training her on uh, just pen raised quail, and it's it's been a blast, a whole new learning experience, a whole new appreciation uh, for the sport from that aspect too. Awesome. And so where you're at, I would imagine you've got preserve pheasant. Do you have wild, do you have wild birds nearby? Not nearby. Okay. Um, there's some good public pheasant grounds and I got to be careful how much I talk about it because everyone's going to want to apply for them, but <laughs> well, you, <laughs> you definitely put... don't need to say the locations if you don't want to. <laughs> yeah. Um, you got to put in a draw for them in central Illinois and, and they really do a great job managing some wild pheasant down there. Um, but locally, it's mostly pen-raised birds, but I'll spend a great deal of my time heading up north to the north woods of Wisconsin and okay. UP, Michigan, chasing grouse and woodcock. Okay, cool. So you're coming up this way and, and getting into grouse country. That's cool. Yeah, absolutely. So you're, uh, yeah, so that was going to be my next question was how, how bad the upland bug had bit you. And you sounds like you are doing some traveling hunting anywhere else other than grouse country yet. Yeah, I've uh, been out to the Dakotas, well, North Dakota. Okay. Um, and that was that was some hard hunting. Those birds took a hit over the past year or two, um, but it was a blast getting to my first group of sharp tails out there, nice. which was good. Um, do some quail hunting down in southern and central Illinois as well. So I'd say primarily uh, quail, pheasant, grouse, and woodcock are the four species I've been going after for the past eight years now. When you went out to North Dakota, was it early season or later season? Uh, it was about mid-November. Okay. So, yeah. So you were yeah, you were hunting, you had opportunities on sharp tails, but you were, I would imagine, you are primarily hunting pheasants at that time. Oh, absolutely we were. Um, but we, uh, we had 10 hunters with nine well-trained bird dogs, and after four days we had flushed uh, six or seven pheasants total. So... It was it was tough hunting. Um, we had to get down into the cattails to really find them where they were in cover. Um, but nonetheless, it's just fun watching the dogs run those fields out there. Yeah, it most definitely is. That was one of the one of my finest memories from my first trip out west this September was just after running my dog in the in the grouse woods for four years to bring him out there and and see him actually see him running the prairie it was yeah was, really let him loose yeah it was really really fun I can't wait to go back it's gonna be fun all right Dustin well let's kind of transition into a little bit more of your professional forte and let's do some hopefully do some educating for sure educating myself and uh hopefully we'll educate the listeners as well but you have in talking to you i know this you've kind of made it a mission of yours to and we've touched on a little bit but you you want to educate people on first aid in the field in that our dogs are oftentimes at risk just because of the nature of what they do. And as much as we don't want it to happen, things can go wrong. So talk a little bit about, let's just kind of start from the beginning. Talk about sort of your motives behind this and maybe sort of give us the basic structure of, of what you teach in one of these seminars. And then we can perhaps break it down a little bit. Yeah. And, and honestly, my motives just come from my clients calling me from 
South Dakota, three hours from the middle of nowhere, that they got a problem with their dog and they got no idea where to go. Or, um, and, and honestly, we'll use this as a segue into it all starts again with preparation. So sure. yes, I want to educate hunters on how to care for their bird dogs when they don't have access to the vet. But first and foremost, I want them to be able to have access to a vet. I mean, obviously <laughs> that's the best thing for them. And the most common call I get from my hunters when they're, you know, travel to another state is I had the, I had the vet's number, but either a, I can't get a hold of them. Or a lot of times when you're out, you know, hunting in the country, they're also cattle vets and they're out doing cattle calls for the day and they're not available. So, you know, not only get the contact information and location of the veterinarian where you're going to be hunting, talk to them, make sure that they'll take new clients or make sure they're comfortable with emergencies and make sure they're going to be around. Uh, because a lot of the times it, it's not even that um, people are, are far from the truck in the field. It's that they thought they had a plan figured out, but didn't look into it enough. And now they don't have a veterinarian available when they thought they would. So, you know, researching those veterinarians ahead of time is important. Um, that's a really good then, point. Just, just because I I'm guilty of it. I've done it. You know, it's real easy to go and Google a couple of numbers to vet and put them in your phone and think, okay, here we go. I'm, I'm prepared. I did my, I did my due diligence, but in reality, like you're saying, it probably makes a heck of a lot of sense to give that person a phone call and try to actually talk to somebody and ask them some of those basic questions. I think that's a really good reminder for people. Yeah, Absolutely. So, because I know me, if you asked me to go see a cow, I couldn't tell you anything. I haven't worked with large animal in a lot of years. So, <laughs> me either. Uh, man. Some of them, yeah. <laughs> so some of them might feel the same way about a dog. So, yeah. Um, but so so have the vet location contact information. Have your vet's contact information because they might be able to help you in a bind. Okay. Um, there's one thing that I tell everybody to keep saved in their phone, and I'll give you this right now. It's a the ASPCA poison control hotline. It's a, it's a national hotline for any time that dogs get some sort of toxicity. So if they, if they ate some sort of medication or chemical that you're worried about, um, they have board certified veterinary toxicologist on 24 hours a day that you can call. Uh, and we could, maybe we can post a link to this or something. After yeah, I will, I will but, absolutely put it in the show notes, but yeah, if you want to give it out right now, that'd be fine. Yeah. It's 888-426-4435 and it's a paid service, but they are there 24 hours a day to help you with that when you don't have access. So um, those two things, contact of a vet, contact of the ASPCA, and then finally have your first aid kit and know how to use it. Um, there's a lot of first aid, first aid kits out there. Uh, a lot are good. A lot could be better. Um, so I think go over your kit with your veterinarian. Make sure it's got what you think it should have. Um, if you've been to my seminars out at Pheasant Fest or the, the other uh, talks I've been doing this year, I've been sort of talking up a company called Medi Canine, M-E-D-I, Canine USA. I just recently helped them develop a first aid kit that targets hunters based off what I use in my first aid kit. Now, mine might have a few extra uh, supplies that most people don't have access to, but for the general hunter, this Medi Canine first aid kit, I've been helping them put it together, and it really is just top notch. And the, the cool thing about their company is actually they're a non for profit, uh, Paul Fedinex, a veterinarian, who put it together. And 
all their money that they make off these first aid kits go to supplying military and police uh, dog handlers with first aid kits and training for taking care of their dogs. So wow. it's a, it, yeah, it's a good kit and it's for a good cause. So I, uh, I really do push that. And if you have a, any question about if you're missing anything from your kit, at the very least you could go to their website and see how you're stacked up to theirs. So um, those two well, phone numbers and, and the first aid kit, I'd say, are the are three most important things in preparation. Okay, so one of my questions was definitely going to be, what is in your field first aid kit? And maybe this is a this is a good time to talk about that a little bit. Um, and you know, and we don't have to go through every last detail, like you said, people could reference that Medi Canine kit. But let's talk about some of the major pieces that you wouldn't be caught dead without, and go over uh, what they're what they're going to come in handy for. Yeah, so the one big thing that I will always talk about, and out of anything you could have in your first aid kit, this is the one thing that could potentially save your dog's life when you're out there, is some sort of high-energy supplement. And when I say that, I mean either honey or Nutri-Cal is another one that's that's made for dogs. Uh, a lot of breeders will be familiar out there with it. But um, what I mean by that is dogs can end up with low blood sugar. It's called hypoglycemia. And most commonly, I see it in hot, really hot, extreme weather temperatures, so really hot or really cold. And it's a, it's a life-threatening event, and literally all you have to do is rub some honey on their tongue, their gums, and it'll bring them out of it. Now... That'll save your dog's life if they find themselves in that situation, and it's an easy thing to have on you. But the important thing is if you find yourself in that situation, they can slip back into it. So get to the vet after you do it. But any first aid kit, just and even if you forget it, stop by the local breakfast shop and get a couple packets of honey or something before you go out on a hunt. So um, that's an important ingredient. And uh, we're going to get into this later, but let's talk about that low blood sugar real quick. because. Uh, the two times I see that most, we're coming up on one of them right now, is, is early season um, hunt tests because a lot of these dogs have been out of hunting for you know a couple months when they start running these hunt tests and these field trials, and they they've gone from you know hunting frequently to the occasional weekend warrior of doing a little bit of exercise here and there whenever the owner gets them out. And these dogs become a lot less efficient at using their energy and they burn through it a lot faster. And so early on people say, Oh, I worked my dog all year hunting. Let's go out and run this field trial or this hunt test. And all of a sudden they burn through their, their energy, you know, three times as fast as they did when they were out hunting. And now you end up with a low blood sugar. So that's one situation. And then the other one is it doesn't have to be freezing temperatures, but a cool day with a breeze and and cold humidity tend to bring dogs not only into hypothermia, which we can talk about that later, but also the low blood sugar. And so those are the two situations where I really recommend having that on hand because it can help with it. So... Um, all right. Enough about the high energy supplements, other things in the first aid kit. Well, okay. One, so, one question before you move on from that is oh, yeah. that hypoglycemia, I have heard of dogs getting it, but I feel like it hasn't been very often. It was maybe one or two people mentioned it. And I kind of felt like the way that those people talked about it, they made it sound like their dog was predisposed to hypoglycemia or, you know, they had it once and they're having it again. I mean, is that the way that you talk about it? It sounds like that should be on everybody's radar. Well, I'd say that the dogs that I see get it repeatedly kind of have the lifestyle that 
put them in a situation. Now, um, as far as things like hypothermia and hypoglycemia, I really talk about those two things in upland dogs more than the waterfowl dogs. Okay. Um, waterfowl dogs have, and the retrievers, they've got a lot more of that extra fat layer, a lot more energy to kind of support them, where these upland dogs are running pretty lean a lot of the time. But um, the dogs that have it repeatedly – they're going to be really lean dogs and, and the clients where I see it happen over and over again are these dogs that are the weekend warrior dogs that just get occasional exercise, not proper conditioning. And then they're going out and they're hunting for six hours at a time and their body can't support it. So I, I, I'm not saying that that's how it was for those dogs that you've talked, uh, whose owners you've talked to, but a lot of times it's just dogs, you know, adequate conditioning is the best way to avoid that from happening because the body learns to be more efficient at using energy and it doesn't burn through it quite as quickly. So that, and then also keeping them on a high protein, high fat diet throughout the year actually conditions them and helps them learn to use energy at a more efficient rate rather than burning through it quickly. So there are things you can do, whether it's exercise conditioning or, or a diet change that can help reduce the amount that that happens. Um, and there's also some supplements that you can give right before or right after a hunt that can help them replenish their energy stores, especially if you're going to be uh, doing multiple day hunts. Um, now, honey is a great energy supplement, but it's it's not the best thing to give routinely because it's more for an emergency situation. If you're giving it routinely and you're giving it before every hunt or you're giving it after every hunt, then they can get diarrhea from that because of how rich it is. So again, I'm just using those for really emergency situations, but yeah. it's about the lifestyle and about how much you condition the dog to prevent it from going into these situations. Okay. So that brings up another question. I'm sure that this will keep happening, but I, I think it's a, it's all good conversation. So beyond a good, healthy, balanced dog food that I think, you know, we could talk about that a little bit, but I think most people are kind of aware that you want to have your dog on a good quality dog food. You know, it's got to eat something, right? But the where the where it gets really gray and kind of drops off quickly is when we start looking at supplements. And I always have a super high like red flag radar alert when it comes to supplements. And I'm speaking about you know, supplements for humans, for, for my own personal nutrition, and then dogs, because I know what kind of an industry it can be. But I also know that there are oftentimes really good uses for good high quality supplements. So let's talk about those a little. Are there any essentials that you always have, you're always giving the dog? Or is it more of a mix of things that you have on hand for specialized use? And I would say more specialized use. Okay. Um, if you're feeding a well-balanced diet, and if we find ourselves with some time, we can go into what that truly means. But sure. if you're feeding a well-balanced kibble diet, um, that should have everything your dog needs. All right. Unless you're working with sled dogs, racing greyhounds, or if you're doing field trials five times a week, um, any active hunting dog on a well-balanced diet should do okay. Um, one of the biggest things and it just kills me reading a lot of outdoors magazines are people promoting electrolyte solutions sure um yeah that's just not necessary for dogs like it is for humans so humans when the way we cool ourselves down is by sweating and when we sweat we use we lose electrolytes okay the sodiums potassiums chlorides things like that um, dogs don't sweat 
60% of their heat that they lose is by panting and giving off water vapor. So these electrolyte supplements, and there's a lot of, a lot of the, the supplements out there is just taking information from humans and extrapolating it onto dogs. Um, Which is kind of crazy it, to think that, that people yeah. do that, but I mean, it happens, right? Oh, absolutely. And, and, and it happens with medications. It happens with diet. And so there is a difference between the two. But um, so what electrolytes do for dogs is they regulate in their bloodstream how much sodium, potassium, chloride and other electrolytes they have. And if you give an electrolyte supplement to help hydrate your dog, what that does is the body says, oh, shoot, I've got way too much of this electrolyte. I need to get rid of it. And the only way to get rid of it is through urinating. And so now instead of hydrating your dog, you're actually stimulating your dog to put off fluid. So um, I, I, I just can't help but shake my head when I see articles written out there on giving your dog these electrolyte supplements because they are not, they're, they're not what your dog needs. Your dog just needs water, just straight room temperature water. See, um, that's why I asked you, Dustin. Yeah. Now I will <laughs> say one supplement, and this goes back to the energy. Yep. Um, something that includes maltodextrins. Okay. That is the, the one energy supplement that right prior to a hunt or right after a hunt, about 30 minutes after your hunt, that your dog can rapidly absorb that and replenish their energy supply for the next hunt, for the next day. So maltodextrins are a good idea for dogs that are going to be doing multi-day hunts. Um, you know, even, even honey has to go and get processed through the liver and there's a little bit of a delay there where the maltodextrins, they're going to be able to replenish their muscle energy right after a hunt, but you got to give it right after the hunt. That's how they use it. That would be the only supplement that, or maybe some probiotics out there. I use the, the Fortiflora made by Purina oh, yeah. um, that can help reduce the diarrhea that they have uh, on a multi-day hunt as well. Uh, those would be the two supplements that I carry with me. Yeah. I've actually utilized both of those things with, I think, pretty good results. The maltodextrin thing, that's a I think it's a simple carbohydrate. Like I'm somewhat familiar with it. I've actually I've used it personally a little bit uh, for that purpose. Now I, I've used a supplement for the dog with maltodextrin as the main active ingredient, and there's some other stuff in there. It was kind of like chicken flavored. It's like a powder. You put it in their water, and they direct you to do it 30 minutes after the hunt. And I do think that has worked well. Would you encourage that people seek out some kind of a like a marketed supplement, you know, there's not, I don't think there's a ton available like that. There's one that I'm thinking of that I like. Um, but like you wouldn't just go buy maltodextrin from the grocery store and put it in water. Or could you do that? No, I would go absolutely. What you just said is one, look at the ones that are targeted for your, or for canines. Okay. But two, then ask your veterinarian about it because even the ones with that ingredient in there can have a lot of other stuff. There's always a million other ingredients, and you want to make sure it's one that's safe for your dog. Right. So find find one for dogs, and then talk to your veterinarian about whether that's appropriate for your dog or not. Right, and we'll we'll add the caveat that yes, Dustin, you are a veterinarian, and we're talking about a lot of stuff, and we're getting your excellent excellent opinion and advice on a lot of this stuff. But we obviously encourage all the listeners to consult their own veterinarians because they're going to know that person's dog better than you or I do. Absolutely, yeah. All right, so we kind of we, we sidetracked a little bit there, talked about supplements, but I'm really glad that you simplified it for us. You know, good high yeah. quality dog food, maybe some probiotics, maybe 
uh, pre or post hunt supplement, uh, especially for hunting trips, multi-day trips, something like that, just to give them a little bit of extra juice in the tank without uh, negative results and stuff. So let's uh, let's move on from kind of that nutritional stuff and continue talking about the first aid kit. Yeah. So um, when you talk field first aid, probably the first thing that comes to most hunters' minds are whether it's a barbed wire laceration, well, a laceration from anything, especially when you're running upland dogs. Yeah. Uh, I'd say, you know, nine out of 10 times, if I have a hunting dog injury, I'm treating it's an upland dog over a retriever just because they're running full force through the thickest brush out there chasing these birds. So, um, when it comes to lacerations and, and it's, you can't describe it. Um, you know, you got to show somebody how to do it. And the, the two things that you need to think about are wound cleaning and then putting on a bandage, but not putting it on too tight. So the, the biggest piece of advice I can give people is a bandage should be multi-layered um, with with a non-adherent gauze first. After, this is after the wound has been cleaned. A non-adherent gauze, some sort of cast padding, which provides some cushioning. And then everybody's got what I call vet wrap, but it's that kind of stretchy, waxy um, gauze material that you can wrap a leg with. And the vet wrap is usually where I, it's very helpful because it can put a little bit of pressure on a wound. But it's usually where I see people go wrong because they go too tight with it and it cuts off circulation and the foot swells up. So uh, one way to try to avoid that actually is you unwrap that roll of that wrap first and then roll it back up because there's a lot of tension on that roll because it's stuck to itself with that waxy surface. And if you unroll it first and then roll it back up, you relieve that tension and you're not transferring it directly to the dog's leg. So still, um, there's a lot more that goes on to it. Who knew that a bandage could be so complicated, but uh, it's one little piece of advice I'll give out there. And again, comes back to it. Just ask your vet to show you how and so you're prepared for it. But so I usually have a multi-layered bandage with those three different layers, the vet wrap, the cast padding, and then the knotted pad um, for after flushing the wound um, and then as far as flushing the wound goes I think the best thing that you can use is some sort of high-powered flush like when I say high-powered like just a bottle of contact solution you know spray it on there to get the debris out of there put some neosporin on it and then cover it up and get it to the vet so your bandage material and then <laughs> grooming supplies which anybody running setters or wired hairs or any sort of long-haired breed knows what a nightmare you can get from uh having hair mats and burrs and stuff build up. <laughs> yep. So groom the dog immediately after your hunt. Hair mats will trap moisture in there, and that breaks down the immune barrier or the skin, and that's where you see a lot of these infections. Really? So guys say, well, yeah, yeah, I'm wow. hunting for three or four days. I'll groom my dog at the end of it. Now your mats are, are so close to the skin uh, that you can't get them undone. And, and I will throw this in there. I'd say – Probably 75% of the lacerations I see from hunting don't come from barbed wire. They come from scissors where people are trying to cut the hair mats off of their dog. No so, way. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. Because you, you can't tell where the skin stops and where the mat starts because it gets so tight. Yeah. So a- anytime you're taking hair mats off of dogs, use a set of, of trimmers or clippers. Um, and again, that Medi-Canine pack has one in it for this purpose to clip the hair off the dog, you're not going to cut through the skin with it like you would with scissors. So I tend to have some sort of trimmers or clippers in the kit too, to, to get those mats broken off. So there's a, there's a lot of medications that you can include in your first aid kit. Um, 
the most common things. And again, you need to know whether these are safe for your dog, your specific dog or not based on their medical history and, and other medications. But maybe we can post a list of over-the-counter stuff that's commonly used. Sure. Um, one thing that I've gotten away from big time uh, that we used to recommend, and a lot of, a lot of vets still do use it because uh, they've had good success with it in the past, is using baby aspirin for soreness. Okay. Um, I don't like it because there was a, a study done that showed that, you know, a 50 pound dog got a, a dose of baby aspirin once a day for five days. And every single dog in the study who got that regimen had some degree of bleeding in either their stomach or intestines as a side effect from it. So it's a lot harder on the dogs than it is on people. And there used to be not as many good options, but there's so many good anti-inflammatories um, that the vet has for you to use that don't have those side effects. I just say, go talk to your vet and see if they can work with you for for an alternative to use an aspirin for your dogs. So I don't include that in my kits anymore. Regarding the the application and use of an anti-inflammatory, not talking a specific one here, but what are we, you mentioned soreness. So I can see if, you know, if your dog is stiff legged or, um, you know, showing that, showing that signs of soreness, any other, any other things, signs, symptoms that you're looking for where you think, Hey, an anti-inflammatory might do some good here. Well, honestly, and those are going to be the situations that you just listed the stiffness and soreness where I'm going to be more apt to use it. If a dog's limping, they need to be put up in the truck. Okay. I, I don't like uh, dogs have a lot more stability than we do. They're running on four limbs instead of two. So if they come up lame or limping, one thoroughly look them over. You know, check for for cuts underneath their paw pads. Check for uh, you know, and it can be very subtle to check for swelling in their joints. And, and again, a limping dog should probably be seen by a vet. But if you've got a dog who you know your veterinarian's diagnosed with some arthritis, you know you're you're hunting with that. Uh, seven or eight year old dog, uh, those are going to be more of the situations that I use anti-inflammatories. And, and that's where you kind of run the risk of making those judgment calls on your own for a dog who doesn't have that diagnosis because it may just mask something else that's going on. And that's where a lot of veterinarians get scared about giving these medications out for use in the field because uh, you can hide things. Bird dogs are tough dogs. They already don't show pain when they're hurt. So if they're showing some sort of pain, there may be something major going on there that you need to sit down and take a serious look at. So uh, again, it, it all comes back to your, your doc's recommendations there. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. I mean, we, I think most people that have spent a good amount of time around bird dogs know that, that pain tolerance and that they basically express nothing until something is, is really wrong. And I think that's a good reminder for people to, you know, if your dog is expressing some kind of pain or symptom, uh, definitely something you want to pay attention to for sure. Yeah. And, and what I say in my talks are physical exams throughout the hunt. And, and it sounds like a pain, but every 20 minutes, and it really is easier than it sounds because what else are you doing every 20 minutes? You're probably giving your dog water, or at least you should be. Right. And so when they come over to get some water from you, take a look at them, feel their paws. I've, I've had so many broken toes or lacerations. You know, a lot of barbed wire. I don't know. Nick, have you ever had a dog get a barbed wire cut before? I haven't. Field? I haven't. I'm knocking on uh, my wood Thank desk goodness. here, Dustin. But yeah. It, I'm and, not trying to jinx you here. No, but, uh, no, no, no. I haven't. <laughs> Mo most barbed wire cuts barely bleed at all. So it doesn't matter that you're not seeing blood. 
it may be there. So check under the armpits, check in the inguinal region between their, their back legs. And you know, those are the areas you're most kind of commonly see those cuts, but they're usually not going to come up limping or bleeding until, uh, you know, I, I tell the story, we had a wired hair that we got home after the hunt and we looked in her kennel and there were two drops of blood in her kennel. And we said, what the heck is that? And then we looked under her armpit and she had probably a, five inch laceration from who knows what that she just hunted the whole day with and we had no idea was there so even veterinarians can miss these things if we're not being smart and checking our dogs over routinely during the hunt yeah i've seen it when i when i first had my dog actually it was the first time i saw this i was with uh, a friend of mine he got a dog before i did and the dog was running and it's like everybody's worst fear the dog is in the brush it comes out of the brush and it's covered in blood. Face is absolutely covered in blood. <laughs> both of our jaws hit the ground. We'd never, this, I mean, we were both pretty new to bird dogs. We'd never seen anything like it. And, you know, I think we basically started hosing the dog's face down. And sure enough, it was like, I, it was a little tongue nick, you know, a little nick uh-huh. on, on the tongue of the dog. And the tongue notoriously bleeds a lot. And a lot of people listening, I would imagine, have had this happen. And I've had it happen since where you can, you know what it is, right? Like it's not yeah. that it's not that serious of an injury, but it it sure looks like it, and that's stuff it just scares the crap out of you. Yeah, they come out looking like the Joker from Batman. Yep. Uh, yep. Tongues, tongues, and ears will do that. Correct. Yep. Sure. Yep. Um, yeah, and those ones, there's just not a lot you can do except for getting their letting them rest and get their heart rate down. The the tongue will stop bleeding pretty quick as long as you get their heart rate down. But if they're still amped up and running around, it's just going to keep pumping. It's, it's it, it looks nasty, man. You're right about that one. Sure. Yeah. And and I guess that was uh there, that was my question buried in there was yeah anything we can do there other than you know hose it off, make sure you're you're keeping track that it's it is stopping slash slowing down. How about the how about those ears? Anything you would do right then and there? Uh, it de- it depends how bad it is. Sure. If it's a little nick. Again, it's the same thing. Put them up for a couple hours, it'll stop, and they'll be good to go. Um, But an ear cut bothers me a lot more than a tongue because those tend to start up bleeding again if you get them out of the truck. You know, if it's a bad enough laceration, uh, those ones will keep going. And usually those ones need to be closed up medically somehow. uh, Where where the the, the minor ones on the tongue tend to be a little more forgiving. So Gotcha. So we talked about supplements a little bit. We talked a little bit about medication um and wrapping some open wounds any other any other medications worth mentioning at this juncture um you know i I, one i will tell everybody and get the dose from your doc but benadryl is a good one to have okay um it's not going to be your final cure but allergic reactions can be a bad deal usually those happen from some sort of bug bite or bee sting um and, and the classic look for that is the muzzle or the whole muzzle or one side of the face swells up. And so you can start them off with Benadryl. And the big mistake a lot of people make with that is they give them the Benadryl and they see the swelling stops progressing and they think, all right, I'm good. But that's a condition that can keep getting worse over the next couple hours where they they have breathing uh, issues. So you can slow it down and you can help the dog by giving them the Benadryl. But usually they need to get into a vet and get some sort of injection to really stop that. But you can delay the progression of it by giving them that oral Benadryl on the spot. So that's another one that I'll I'll keep on hand for these guys. All right. Continuing through the kit, are we getting near the bottom or are you still pulling out handy items? (laughs) 
Um, you know, small stuff like quick stop is good. I already mentioned the flush, not only for wounds, but for eyes, yeah. a bottle of contact solution works. Um, and the, the ticket for the eyes is, is a, a kind of a, you don't want to just do drops. You want to do kind of a steady stream, yep. not, not a high pressure stream, but a steady stream enough to really move some debris out of the eye for them. Um, and again, not directly at the eye, but more towards the corner of it to get stuff out rather than a couple drops will, will help with moisturizing it, but it's not going to get any stuff out of the eye. So, uh, the only other thing, and uh, I think this is one of the most important things, uh, is a slip lead. Um, yeah. Most people tell me, well, my dogs, you know, they either I got an e-collar or my dog listens to me just fine. But there's a bunch of uses for slip leads uh, outside of just uh, putting your dog up. And uh, I always tell the story of, well, my dog listens too, but I was up in the UP grouse hunting last year. And it was, oh, no, this is two years ago. And it was opening weekend for bear hunting and this this little hound pup, it couldn't have been more than 10 years old. I mean, 10 months old, just got separated from his group and stumbled along us and kept trying to play with our setters while we were grouse hunting. So <laughs> he, he had his GPS collar on him. So all we did was took a slip lead and tied him to, a, we tied him to a tree and gave a call to the owner and left him a voicemail and said, all right, you got the GPS collar here, are the coordinates with where the dog is. And within 10 minutes, the, the dog got picked up, but <laughs> you can use it for, use it for another dog, but I'll use them for muzzles. Um, if you need to do some first aid work on your dog, I don't care if it's the nicest dog in the world. If a dog's painful, they're going to snap. Okay. It's, it's going to happen. And I like to think my Callie would never do it to me, but if she hurt enough, she would. So you can use a slip lead as a muzzle. Um, you can use it as a tourniquet. So there's a lot of good uses for slip leads. And then, uh, also a thermometer, uh, a hot dog looks like a hot dog. There's no way to tell if it's temperature is too high. And if you're getting into a dangerous level, um, nor if it's too cold. So have a rectal thermometer or just a normal over the counter thermometer, but you got to take a rectal temperature if you're worried about your dog's temp. Um, and for those who are wondering, a normal dog temperature is about 100.5 to 102.5. Um, but I, I was definitely wondering that. <laughs> <laughs> now I will, I will say this. You need a resting temperature though. A, a bird dog, an upland dog, like a setter, in, in the heat of the moment when they're going full force, their temp can get up to 106. Okay. Uh, and Labradors can get up to 107. But um, if you've rested them for 10 or 15 minutes and they're still looking hot and you take a temperature that's over 103.5, that's where you're kind of getting to that danger zone. And, and 105 is really the classic danger, potentially going into heat stroke temperature at a rested temp. So, uh, keep an eye out. The best way to prevent that is, is hydration. You know, we mentioned earlier that 60% of dogs heat is given off through water vapor and panning. Well, that's a lot of moisture they're giving off. So you got to keep them hydrated, make sure they got access to either a pond to jump in or, or shade, um, and then be able to cool them down. And when you cool them down, it's a little controversial. You don't want to cold shock them. Yep, and I've there's a little that. bit of, yeah. Now that I will say there's some ER, veterinarians out there doing some research that, that are showing potentially there might be more benefit than risk with that. But I'm still a little more conservative until more data comes out because what happens is, and anybody who's fallen into cold water before knows, you get this kind of <gasps> feeling where oh, yeah. everything just freezes up. And, and what that is, is all the blood vessels in your legs and in your arms shrink. And what that does is it 
it traps heat in your core for your vital organs. It's a cold shock response, which is good if you found yourself in cold temperatures. But if you've got an overheated dog and you cold shock him with ice water, now all those vessels that give off heat have trapped the heat on their vital organs, on their heart, their lungs, their kidneys, and it's going to take longer to cool them down. So um, get them wet and get them under some sort of air, whether it's a fan or start driving the truck so they can evaporate that heat off of them. That's going to be the best way to cool them down. Don't wait for the AC to pick up in your truck because that's going to take too long. Just you want to keep air running on them. And then as they dry off, put some more water on them so that can evaporate off and keep pulling the heat off of them. So, but you're going to need a thermometer to know when to do that. Definitely good advice there. And that stuff is applicable even if your dog is not showing signs of heat stroke. That's just good advice for, for getting, yeah, getting for them sure. cooled down after a hunt. Absolutely. And and speaking of cooled down, if we're talking about temperatures, uh, you know, there is no good reason any bird dog, I don't care if it's a, a retriever sitting out in a cold duck blind or a dog running in the field, there's no good reason their temperature should ever be below 100 degrees out in the field. So if you've got a dog whose temperature is getting that low, you know, 99 is not an emergency, but I'm getting concerned. Why are we starting to get so cold? We need to heat this dog up a little bit. Um, hypothermia, uh, the way you want to warm your dog up for hypothermia really is going to be uh, any temperature, again, below 100 or 100.5. Uh, this goes back to a lot of articles, again, in, in hunting magazines. You'll say have warm water bottles or a heating blanket, an electric heating blanket. And, and I, I hate those two things because if you've got a dog who's that cold, Either one, they're not going to feel if something's too hot, or two, they're not going to move off of it, even if they do feel it. And you can actually see dogs suffer burns from these things. So the way I heat up my dog, uh, and I've actually had a situation where my Cali got too cold, is get her under the floorboard of your truck and blast the heat on that. And then in your first aid kit, have one of those uh, Mylar heating blankets, emergency survival blankets, put it over them, and they'll heat up really fast that way. Okay. Uh, and you actually want to keep a close eye on them because they will heat up so fast that they start panting, get them out of there because they're <laughs> going to get too hot. But but dry them off too. I mean, that's that's step one. And the upland dogs are going to be more prone to this because they got less of that body fat. If they're too cold and, and the signs of being too cold or having too low blood sugar, because usually those two things go hand in hand, all of a sudden your two-year-old pup is going to be walking like a 10-year-old arthritic dog. Really stiff, jagged motions, just kind of moving slow, freezing up. That's a sign that they're either too cold, their blood sugar is too low, or both. So um, those are your red flags on getting them back to the truck. <laughs> Got it. Got it. I was just writing down uh, something you said before, slip lead, uh, because I do always carry a little leash, a short little leash in my vest, but I think I'm going to pick up a slip lead because I like the multi-purpose use that you describe, and I just think it's a little bit more of a versatile tool, so I think that's a good suggestion. Yeah, and I found myself where I forgot my slip lead. I end up using a belt as a slip lead instead, so there's a... <laughs> A word from experience there for you. <laughs> I suppose that works as well. All right. So one thing you didn't mention, Dustin, and I know that some people have it in their kits. I think I had a, a buddy that actually had it and or borrowed it and used it. Uh, a stapler. Is, <laughs> yes. where, where do you fall on that? Is that uh, something that should be uh, kept in the hands of a professional or tell me about it? Yeah. And. A lot of people, I, I used to be a big proponent of staplers because you can, they can be so helpful if you've got a small little laceration that you just need to get closed up. But 
I have seen a lot of mistakes been made with staplers. And so I, I've, the, the more I do this and the more, and it's funny, usually it's people coming up with, actually I had a police officer come up to me and brag about the work they did on their dog. I said, look, I, I close it up with a stapler and it, it had to be a three inch long wound that had maybe 25 staples in it. Aye, aye, aye. <laughs> and I just, I was like, this is a, oh, this is somebody who's had professional training before. So, uh, the more of those that I see the the less apt I am to recommend them. I guess what it comes down to is it can be a helpful tool, but only if you've had somebody professional show you exactly how and when to use it. Gotcha. Just make sure, because it seems so simple, like, oh, yeah, sure, just staple it together. But some of the worst wounds I've had to treat were ones that were stapled five days earlier, and, and they were, now they've gotten infected or they're breaking apart because there was too much tension on it. So you definitely need to get some sort of training if you plan on using one. Got it. All right, man. Does that uh, does that kind of round out the field first aid kit for us? I think so. I could go all day about it, but that's all the major stuff. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, we definitely covered a lot there, and I believe that you know it's one of those things where I could probably call you up a year from now, and we could just have the same conversation and do people a lot of good, right? Because it's some of, it's some of that stuff where for you, you live it and breathe it. It's every day. And for us, it, you know, we hope to never have to use this stuff. And oftentimes that lends itself to a little bit of avoidance behavior. Like we just don't put enough thought into it. And then when, when you really do need this education or the tools, it's such a serious situation that it just lends itself to, you know, I mean, it can be disaster. It can be emergency. It's scary stuff. So I think having this conversation is, is excellent. And I wonder if there are, any other thoughts floating around in your head? Just kind of some overall advice that you would give the uh, the everyday bird dog handler. Uh, I'm I'm laughing because I'm going through my list here, my first aid kit, and there is one thing I forgot to mention. Okay, I'm going to get a, a little bit of a soapbox here for a second, if you'll allow me. Go for it. Is is a tick key for oh, you yeah, and I? Yeah, yeah. You and I hunt in the North Woods. Know that you're going to have ticks are an issue, and. Um, you know, obviously flea and tick monthly prevention is the most, you know, the best way to avoid them, but inevitably you're going to find a tick somewhere. And, and here's my soapbox speech for all those boys and girls out there running male dogs. All right. Male, this is going to blow your mind. Male dogs have nipples. (laughs) (laughs) If I could tell you how many times I, it's a classic phone call. Somebody calls me from Wisconsin or Minnesota or the UP said, Doc, I'm out in the woods. My dog's got this tick on him. I've been trying to pull it off for three days. It's swelling up. It's filling with blood. It's just getting huge. I can't get it off. And it's, sure enough, it's on the belly. And this poor dog oh, has been man. trying to pull at its nipple for three days thinking it's a tick. So consider yourself educated now. Male dogs have – it takes you back to the Meet the Parents video or movie if you ever saw that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which I won't go there, but – have a tick key or a tick spoon. If you don't know what they are, we can show a picture of them. But uh, they're the easiest way to get ticks off. <laughs> Just make sure you're pulling at a tick. <laughs> yeah, I have used the tick key. It works very well. And I can I can happily tell you that I've never attempted to use it on one of my male dog's nipples. <laughs> but I have, I have felt the nipple on my male dog and thought, Oh man, is that a tick? And then upon closer inspection realized that it's not. So yeah, I guess uh, everybody has been, uh, has been warned and educated on that. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, 
Um, that's the one thing I, I think we didn't cover and I'm trying to think of anything. Like I said, I could go all day about, you know, hot and cold temperatures and when to run your dog, what to feed your dog. But I think we'd be here for about six hours doing that. Yeah. Yeah, uh, for sure. Well, you're definitely, you're very knowledgeable and I really appreciate you taking the time to, to chat with us. This was a great conversation. And like I said, I think it's just stuff that we don't, we probably don't put enough thought into it as uh everyday bird ha- bird dog handlers myself included uh so again i do appreciate you joining us uh any last thoughts comments uh from you justin uh just thank you for having me here um you know uh we can post some links online but for sure i'm doing a lot of just started doing some social media stuff, posting a lot of these tips or a lot of photos of the things we talked about on Instagram, uh, just Dr. Dustin DVM, ER Dustin DVM. And uh, you can keep an eye out there to follow up on some of these things and uh, some other things that we didn't get to cover as well. Okay, cool, man. Well, definitely send me send me an email uh, after the show with any relevant links to resources, social media profiles, all that stuff. We'll get it into the show into the show notes and people can check it out there. But beyond that, I really do appreciate you joining us on the project Upland podcast. We'll have you on again someday because like you said, Dustin, there's lots more we could talk about it. So thank you very much for joining us. Yeah. Thanks, Nick. You take care, bud. All right. Have a good one. See ya. You've been listening to the project Upland podcast as your host, Nick Larson. I'd like to thank you tuning in each and every week and i'd like to thank our partners on the project upland podcast bringing you each and every episode of the show pine ridge grouse camp dog trick callers gordy and sons outfitters yukonuba premium dog food and dakota 283 kennels remember you could be next week's winner of the podcast giveaway all you have to do is make a meaningful contribution to the show Leave us a rating, leave us a review, subscribe to the podcast, share the podcast post, or send us some email. I'd love to hear from my listeners. Send me an email, nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com. Don't forget to head over to projectupland.com to see everything else we've been up to, films, blogs, articles, gear reviews, and much, much more. Head over to projectupland.com. That's it for this week's episode of the Project Upland Podcast. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. We'll see you on the next show. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.